0: Our Lord, we do ask you in this next hour to give us ears to hear your voice as you speak to us through your word. Spirit, would you exalt Christ in our minds and in our hearts, our minds through understanding and our hearts through believing and embracing the truth that you have laid before us. We are desperately in need of you at every moment of our lives. And so it is in that desperation, it is in that sense of dependence always that we have that we seek you now. And we ask you to prepare our hearts uniquely for the Lord's table this morning, that we would come with hearts right before you, that we would come with hearts of worship, that we would come with hearts of repentance and obedience and love to you and to Those who belong to you. So, do that we pray. We offer these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew 21. Matthew chapter 21, as we continue through this great chapter. I was hoping to make it all the way through this morning. I doubt that we will make it to verse 46. So, Bear with me, as we'll probably only get down to about verse 40 this morning, and then we'll pick up and finish the rest next week. As we come to Matthew chapter 21, we come to what is probably one of the most devastating parables in all of Scripture, and certainly in Matthew, in which Jesus reveals the treachery of His people, the wickedness of His people, and the sovereign response of God. And it's a tragic picture, not only of a missed opportunity for grace, that's tragic enough in and of itself, but it's tragic because it is of a people who actually scorned God's grace, who rebelled against God's extension of His grace. It's a tragic picture of rebellion in the face of unrelenting grace and a long-suffering God. Now, you cannot read Scripture... And not be overwhelmed with the patience of God. With the kindness and the mercy of God towards His creation in general. And towards His people specifically and particularly. His history of dealing with the nation of Israel is a history of His unrelenting patience and kindness. And long-suffering with a hard-hearted and stubborn people. And if you would ever have any doubt about the patience and the kindness of God, then we would need only then to look to Christ, who is proof of the infinite depth and the mercy and the love of God. And God's heart and God's willingness to save every sinner Who comes to Him. His desire to wash and make clean. And extend His grace. And extend the forgiving love in His Son. To every sinner who is convicted of their sin. Who wants to be clean and free from the guilt of sin. And the power of sin. And to live in communion with the Father. And with the Son by the Spirit. God extends Himself in that way to all of His creation. He withholds it from no one. Paul said that God demonstrates His own love for us in that. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We are described as helpless, godless, enemies of God, and sinners. And it is in that condition that God sent His own dear and beloved Son to bear the penalty and the punishment for the guilt of sinners. Titus 3.4 speaks of God extending His kindness and His mercy and revealing that to all men because of what he did in Christ. So God is a forgiving and a gracious and a long-suffering and a patient God, willing to forgive. Yet in the light of such grace and mercy, man is capable of incalculable rebellion, amazing displays of hardness. The depth of sin's grip on the heart of fallen man is spellbinding. And while our parable applies specifically to the nation of Israel this morning, it reveals the heart of all men who reject the goodness and the grace of God in light of His continual efforts to extend that grace to men and call them to Himself. As a matter of fact, Paul in explaining the gospel in the book of Romans will make the same charge essentially that Jesus is going to make against the Jews as he's explaining the guilt of both Jews and Gentiles. When he says this, these words in Romans chapter 2, just listen. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Romans 2, 4-5. through 5. Now these words are a tragic indictment of man for the rebellion against the goodness and the kindness of God, choosing rather to hold on to their sin, hold on to their iniquity. Now again, this is true of all men, But it is most dramatically demonstrated in the history of Israel. Of all the nations on the earth, no people had received such privilege as to be called near to the Lord God Himself, to be granted His favor. To be granted his covenant, his promises, his word, the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices, and the prophets. No nation had experienced the goodness and the kindness of God more than the nation of Israel. And yet the larger pattern of their history is to display that stubbornness and unrepentant heart that Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 2. And again, what makes that so tragic is the... The nature and the fullness of God's goodness that was extended to them. Now this is no more powerfully illustrated in the Old Testament other than than in Isaiah chapter 5. Go ahead and turn over there briefly. Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5 as we're taking a little longer introduction this morning. But I want to take some time here and briefly look at Isaiah chapter 5. Jesus is going to refer to this parable Or in in his parable himself in Matthew chapter 21... And I want to turn there by way of introduction to our passage because it sets the context of the Lord's words. And there is no doubt that these verses, verses five or 1-7 through seven of chapter 5, were in the back of the Lord's minds as he's giving his parable in Matthew chapter 21. And no doubt that it was in the back of the minds of his listeners, of those Jewish crowds and Jewish leaders largely who were surrounding him and listening to his every word. Now in Isaiah chapters 1 through 39, God is, through the prophet Isaiah, addressing a people who are being prepared for judgment. That judgment is still well over a hundred years away, and yet He is preparing them, He is... Showing them their guilt, He is telling them and warning them of the judgment that is to come because of their refusal to produce the fruit of righteousness in light of God's gracious dealings with them. That's really the message of the prophets throughout the Old Testament. And it's highlighted here in Isaiah chapter 5. It is a parable that God gives to illustrate the tragic cause for their judgment. Read it with me, verses 1 through 7, and I'll make just a few brief comments as we go along. It starts in this wonderful words. Wonderful words of love and adoration and kindness and goodness. Let me sing now for my well-beloved. A song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. Here he is speaking of Israel, who was God's vineyard who was planted by Him, adored by Him, treated by Him with love. It is Israel of all the nations of the earth that He called His beloved and on whom He set His kindness. Verse 2 says, He dug it all around. He removed its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it and also hoot out a wine vat in it. Then He expected it to produce good grapes. God, in calling Israel in covenant to Himself, provided for her. He protected her. He nurtured her. He guarded her. He surrounded her with kindness and promises. He entered into covenant with her at Sinai. He gave her His laws, was mentioned His tabernacle, the sacrifices, the priesthood. He cared for her in the words of Zechariah 2.8 as the apple of His eye. She was precious to Him. He demonstrated that He could call her his beloved in that sense. And then there is a dramatic shift. Look at verse, the end of verse 2. He expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. Only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones?" Why, in light of all of the goodness that I have shown to you, why, in light of all of the patience and the long-suffering and the mercy that I have given to you, why, in light of all of my covenants and my promises and my prophets, why have you not produced good fruit? Why have you not demonstrated a heart that loves the Lord your God with everything? Why have you not demonstrated a heart of obedience? Why have you not demonstrated a heart that responds to the word of the one who is your beloved with obedience and faith and trust and love? Why have you produced only worthless grapes? I expected good things from you, but I found none." You should be a nation marked by righteousness, and yet you are marked by selfishness and unrighteousness, and often worse than even your pagan neighbors around you. So God's favor then is going to be turned into judgment. The land he tilled will be given to destruction. The people he formed will be given over to judgment. Look at verse 5. So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, A cry of distress. Israel, you received nothing but goodness from the Lord, and you have returned his favor with nothing but treachery and rebellion. Therefore, your judgment is going to come. The immediate judgment that will come on them is through the nation of Babylon, Their rejection, their rebellion is ultimately going to bring, as we well know, the ruin of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, which is going to reach its climax in 586 BC when Judah, the last of God's people, is exiled out of the land and into a foreign land. You can read sometime the book of Lamentations, among other places, that speaks of the horror and the devastation and the suffering and the misery that his people suffered as Babylon had laid siege to Jerusalem and they suffered the ravishes of famine. And sadly, this is then much of the history of Israel up to the deportation and even today. However, as grievous and unbelievable as it is, it doesn't even compare to the treachery that Israel displays In our parable this morning in Matthew chapter 21. And again, the rebellion of those in the nation of Israel is not only them, it stands as a picture of the depth of our fallenness as human beings who held captive to sin. So, first, go ahead and turn back over to Matthew 21, verses 33 through 46. And we're going to read through the passage and then see it unfold before us. And note this one reality, this one reality. That God keeps his salvation from those who resist his spirit, but he graciously brings to himself a people who will bear the fruit of righteousness. Go ahead and read it with me this morning and then we'll look more closely. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him, and they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers, who will pay the proceeds at the proper seasons. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. And when they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Go back up to verse 33 and let's note first then a parable of rebellion, a parable of rebellion. He says to them, hear another parable. So this is now the second parable, but the third indictment of the Lord that begin with his confrontation back in verse 23 of Matthew 21. This is the same occasion. And in each case, Jesus used the common rabbinic form of asking questions to form his answer. Essentially, though, what Jesus is doing is he's asking these questions so that they can hang themselves, as it were, by their own mouths. They can speak their own condemnation. And this parable is no different. And the leaders at some level clearly understood that Jesus was building a case against them. They understood at some level that he was exposing their guilt for rejecting his ministry. They already had to come to face with that again at some level back in verses 23 and following. And then again in 28 through 32. And now he's going to turn it up even more by demonstrating their greater guilt, not only in rejecting the ministry of John the Baptist, but something even far worse than that, the ministry of Jesus himself. Now he calls this another parable. And by doing that, he's closely linking it to the other two, and he's continuing the thought. It is an argument that he continually is pounding and pounding and pounding into their conscience, making their actions inexcusable and though it was they who approached Jesus back in verse 23 Jesus has now completely turned the tables and the whole uh, movement of this conversation and the whole movement of this conflict has now turned not them against him so much as him indicting them he has changed it he is undermining their authority. He's exposing the willfulness of their unbelief. And it's really difficult for us to capture the intensity of this scene. Remember, these are the religious elite. These are the leaders. These are the heads of the nation of Israel, as it were. And Jesus is just humiliating them and dismantling them and their authority and their reputation between, before the very people that they claim to exercise authority over. These crowds, as Luke tells us, are hanging on every one of Jesus' words as he speaks. And they are, as Mark 11 tells us, astonished at his teaching. And so these leaders, they understood the precarious nature of the environment. He understood that the people were getting his indictment of them. And the messianic fervor, as we've already seen from Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, is at a high, it's at a fever pitch. And Jesus is at the center of that messianic expectation, as it were. They're all watching him closely. They're listening to him. They're wondering about him. Could this be the one? What is he going to do? What is going to happen next? What is going to happen and be the outcome of this conflict with these leaders? They simply did not know and the anticipation was very high. And notice here that the crowd is actually growing larger than it was when he began this conflict conflict with them. In fact, Matthew indicates that as he's talking, others are starting to join in. And not only others in terms of the crowds, the Jews in general, but also others of the leaders and the guardians of the temple, as it were, are coming now and listening to his words. If you remember back in verse 23... It was the chief priest and the elders of the people who came to him. But we have identified at the end of this parable that the chief priest and the Pharisees heard his parables. In other words, they're coming and being added to the group. And all three of the synoptics mention that after the parable, they understood that he spoke it against them. They understood that they were the objects of these parables. That they were against Him. But they could do nothing. They essentially had to sit there and take it. They simply had to absorb everything that He was saying. Why? Because verse 46 tells us they feared the people. They were afraid. And so as Jesus is essentially giving them a spiritual spanking and slapping them and exposing them. They have to endure it. They have to take it. And their hatred and their anger against him is only mounting. It's fuming. Inside, you can imagine, they're barely able to control their hatred against this man, Jesus. So it is in this context that he begins his second parable, and it's powerful. And in many ways, it's a climax of everything that he said up to this point. And in many ways, really, it's even a climax or a summary of all of the gospel of Matthew and his ministry up to this point. As with the previous parable, this one takes place in a vineyard. And with all parables, Jesus is drawing from imagery that would be familiar, well known to them. The land was filled with vineyards, they covered the hills, and vineyards and landowners and sons and workers were all a central part of the life of the nation of Israel. However, as we've already read in Isaiah chapter 5, for Israel, the vineyard was much more than simply a part of their culture, it was much more than simply a part of their economic structure, it was God's chosen metaphor to picture His people and His relationship with them. And you'll remember, just as a footnote here, that Jesus uses this same metaphor of a vine and branches in John 15, speaking of himself primarily as the vine and the Father as the vine dresser. But for now, Jesus draws from the vineyard imagery and he's linking his story back to what we just read in Isaiah chapter 5. That's going to be his launching point. And they would make this connection in their mind. And as one older commenter, uh, commentator noted, the language and imagery belonged to the established religious dialect of Israel. So while the parallels would have been fairly obvious to the Jews, we must also remember that the parables teach a general point and the details must not be pressed too far. It's a story. And so with that, let us listen in. And notice first here then that this another parable is of a vineyard planted, cared for and entrusted to others. He says there was a landowner who planted a vineyard. Now he's going to, again, connect with the parable of Isaiah chapter 5, but he's going to change it. He uses that as a starting point, but he's going to build on it and adapt it to his situation. And they would have understood this theme going uh, along. The term for landowner here can be translated as master, as it is in the ESV, if some of you have that. It can be translated as householder in the King James, if some of you have that. In other places, the same term in Matthew 10, 25 is translated as, as head of a household. Head of a household. And they're referring to Jesus himself. Or it can be translated as in the New American Standard, landowner. It simply refers to one who was the owner of a piece of property or a head of a family. So Jesus identifies this one who was a landowner as one who owned the land, decided to plant a vineyard. Thus the land and the vineyard are His and they're there by His doing. Or the vineyard is. And the Jewish leaders in the crowd would have clearly understood the landowner as God. God who is the maker and the owner of all things. They would have understood that. The very beginning of the Bible begins with what words? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. From the very beginning of His word, God established himself as the rightful owner and the ruler of all things. They understood God in that light. Everything belonged to him. Psalm 24, 1, The earth is the Lord's, and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. And from all the nations of the earth, God chose to form for himself a people to reveal himself as the creator of the ends of the earth. So he tells his people in Exodus nineteen, five. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my possession among all the peoples, for all of the earth is mine. I own it. I'm the landowner. And I've decided to plant a vineyard, Israel. I've decided to form you as a nation. And I have done great and mighty things before the nations to show that I am alone in your God. Again, he made a covenant with Abraham. He continued that covenant with Isaac and Jacob. He affirmed that covenant before the world when he delivered them from the land of Egypt after forming them into a nation, showing that he is the true God and their God. He entered into another covenant with them by Moses at Mount Sinai. He led them into the land of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua and established them in the land. He divided the land, and then he established Jerusalem through David as where his temple eventually would dwell, a temple built by David's son Solomon. So he gave them land, mediated worship, his word, his promises, and in the words of the parable, then he was a landowner who planted a vineyard. It was a vineyard then also that was cared for. He put a wall around it, and he dug a wine press in it, and he built a tower. First then, he protected it. He put a wall around it. There were a variety of things that could threaten the vineyard. A wall was placed around it to protect it from thieves or wild animals. That's the picture here. A wall served then as a means of protection. And so God was a wall of protection to his people. David, speaking of the one who trusts in the Lord, in uh, Psalm 41 says this, The Lord will protect him and keep him alive. And he shall be called blessed upon the earth. And do not give him over to the desires of his enemies. Of Israel, in Psalm 121, it said, The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord was Israel's wall, as it were. He was their protector and their defender. Secondly, it was a vineyard that he prepared for abundance. He dug a wine press in it. Once the grapes were harvested, they were brought to a wine press, which essentially consisted of, particularly at the time of Jesus, of hewn stone in two large stone areas at different elevations. So the grapes were brought to the top one, there they were crushed, and the juice ran through channels into the lower one, where it was then gathered and eventually put into wineskins. It was a picture then of the abundance of God's provision. Proverbs 3.10 speaks of full wine vats as a picture of God's blessing. It says, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Although Isaiah picks up on the picture and applies it negatively, he speaks of the time of the wine harvest as a time of celebration, as a time of rejoicing in Isaiah 16.10. Here the wine press pictures God's blessing, the abundance in providing for his people. You'll remember the testimony of the land by the spies when they saw and they spied out the land. It was an exceedingly good land, a land which flows with milk and honey. God had brought them into a place of good things. Thirdly, he guarded it. He built the tower. Sometimes these weren't stone towers because those were expensive to build and they were only huts. But here he uses the imagery of a tower. And this tower was used for storage or shelter of workers. It was also used as a means of guarding the vineyard from danger. As someone could ascend, look off into the distance and see any threats that were coming to harm the vineyard. And again, the Lord was all of these things to Israel. And Isaiah 27.3 says this, A vineyard of wine, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. I water it every moment so that no one will damage it. I guard it night and day. He was like a tower to his people. And he was there a shelter to them in a time of trouble. Proverbs 18.10 says this, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. The Lord was a tower to his people. And the point here is this, that God formed Israel to be his people. He planted them in the land. He cared for them. He provided for them. He nurtured and protected them. And then he entrusted the care of it to to others. And this is really getting at the heart of their treachery. After taking such care to plant and prepare and care for his vineyard, the landowner rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. The landowner here... Gave them all they needed to bring in a productive crop. The vine growers then were responsible to keep the vines clean from unwanted growth by pruning. They were to make sure the vines were well watered, the wall and the tower maintained, and the harvests brought in with care. Now, the fact that this landowner went on a journey should not be pressed too far. We shouldn't read too much into the statement. The basic point the Lord is making is this that this landowner left it the vineyard in charge of the vine growers. In other words, he entrusted them with the responsibility to care for the vineyard. That's the point, is it was in their care. It was entrusted to them. It was given to them to be protected, to be everything the landowner was for it while he was away. Now in this case then, the vine growers are the religious leaders and the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders, the priests of the people. Those whom he will describe later as having seated themselves in the chair of Moses. They've taken to themselves the spiritual care of God's people. These are the ones who are to guard against the error of sin they were the guard against the error of the nations creeping in among God's people. They were to maintain the purity of worship of God's people. They were to be the ones who made sure that the people God had called to himself were in fact a fruitful vine and a fruitful vineyard. Malachi 2.7 says this, The lips of the priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. That's what it should be. That's what it should be. But in fact, it was something far different than that. Look at verse 34. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. And this is a right expectation, this was right for him to expect. The vineyard having been prepared and entrusted to vine growers, it was the right of the owner to receive the produce of his vines. It was right for him to expect him to receive back from them all that he had prepared his vineyard for. Notice as harvest time approached, he expected there to be a crop. So he sent his slaves to the vine growers, expecting that they would respect his authority and yield to his slaves. He expected to receive produce... In fact, he was then saying that the expectation was that they did their job, that they fulfilled their responsibility, and that in fact his vineyard had produced a crop. In this case, the slaves are the prophets, and the produce would be the response of obedience and righteousness from God's people. In light of his provision, in light of his care, they should have loved the Lord their God with all of their heart. That would have been expected. And yet, when Christ appeared, though there should have been a celebration of joy and faith, He Himself says, if God were your Father, in other words, if you knew the landowner, you would have loved Me. That should have been what was expected when He came. But it wasn't. Notice next, a treacherous consultation. A treacherous consultation. He says... The vine growers then took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Verse 36, again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. Instead of gladly yielding up the produce of the vineyard, they selfishly desired to keep it for themselves. They did not see it as their responsibility to care for it for the landowner. They saw it only of how they could use it for their selfish gain, for their own interest. They were not concerned about serving the landowner, but they were concerned about serving only themselves. And so they killed his servants. They beat them. It's terrible. Now Matthew has condensed this portion of the parable and simply mentions slaves, why Mark and Luke mention them individually. But Matthew is just getting to the point quicker, which he often does. And he's noting here then the treacherous and murderous rebellion of the vine growers. And these are strong terms. He says they beat them. The idea here is of striking repeatedly. It could even be, in some cases, translated as flogging or skinning. It is a violent term, a violent term. Mark says that they beat him and they sent him away empty handed adding here an element of humiliation. Of another, he says, they wounded him in the head and they treated him shamefully. And others they killed. In each case, they were rebelling, not against the slaves, but against the landowner by refusing his demands through his servants. Notice here then the incredible patience of the landowner. He could have come with an army. He could have come with destruction in his heart. He could have come with force to make them pay for what they did to his slaves, but he didn't. They killed some, they beat some, they humiliated them, and he sent them more. He sent them more. And notice also the incredible obedience and submission of the slaves who, knowing what had happened to the others and would likely happen to them, still they came at the bidding of the landowner in a great display of obedience. The parallels are obvious. Each of these actions of the vine growers corresponds to the response of unbelieving Israel to the prophets who were sent to them by God's bidding Israel repeatedly refused the voice of God through his prophets. They refused to yield the fruit of obedience that should have been expected. And it's really quite tragic. But again, this is the history of Israel. Jesus is going to repeat this again in chapter 23. He says, I'm sending you prophets. Wise men, scribes, some of them you'll kill and crucify, some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. This is the history of Israel. The examples are too numerous to mention. But those who suffered in Hebrews 11 at the end of the chapter is a description not only of the righteous, but also of many of the accounts of the prophets. Isaiah, tradition has, anyway, was sawn in two. Elijah's life was constantly under threat by evil kings. Jeremiah was thrown into a cistern of mud in Jeremiah 38.6. Micaiah was put into prison and fed sparingly in 1 Kings 22. In 2 Chronicles, we have a summary of the whole history of Israel and the prophets. Just listen as I read to this. This is 2 Chronicles uh, 36. 2 Chronicles 36. Tell me if this rings up the words of the Lord in Matthew 21. At the end of recounting God's dealing with His people, this is the summary of their response. Verse 15 The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. They are sinning. He is having compassion. And so he sends his servants. Verse 16. But they continually mocked the messengers of God. They despised his words. They scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. This is nothing new. This is what they do. This is how they've treated their God. This is nothing surprising here. It's what they always do in light of God bringing his word to them. And again, what is staggering here is the patience and the long-suffering of God. He could have come and destroyed them, and rightfully so, but he didn't. He appealed to them as a beloved to his wayward wife. As Hosea pictures, he appeals to them as a God and a covenant-keeping God who is calling his people to repentance for their own blessing and good. And they rejected, rejected, rejected. And yet, there's something even more staggering than that. Look at verse 37. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. They will respect my son. The drama and the tension here is overwhelming, jaw-dropping, in fact. In light of such consistent treachery and rebellion and rejection of his authority, instead of force, instead of keeping his son out of harm's way, he instead sends him to this same murderous and treacherous group. Why? Well, he says, because they will respect my son. They will respect him. They will honor him. And this displays an incredibly gratuitous expectation of the landowner. He gives them unfathomable credit. And yet the greatness of the reality that he would send his own son, the sheer magnitude and honor and authority of his son, he says, surely will subdue their rebellious hearts. Surely my own son will well up in them the response of obedience, cause them to realize their error and yield to his request. But it doesn't. Look at verse 38. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and let us seize his inheritance. Again, incredible. And they were not caught by surprise. This was not the action because of misunderstanding of who he was. This is deliberate, calculated, purposeful action against the son of the landowner and really this harkens us back by illustration to the words of Joseph's own brothers in verse Genesis 37:18 when they saw him coming from a distance Genesis tells us that before he came close to them they plotted against him to put him to death in that sense a foreshadowing in some ways even of what was here happening to Christ notice they are concerned about His inheritance, which would include the vineyard they're seeking to keep for themselves. And apparently they thought that somehow by killing their son, the landowner would still not come and destroy them and remove them from the land. He hadn't done that yet. Why would they think he'd do that now? And notice they're moved by nothing greater than the selfish desire to keep what rightfully belonged to another. So what did they do to the son? They took him. They threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Now, they would not likely have picked up on son here as referring to Christ. But it's clear that's how Jesus meant it, that he was referring to himself. It's clear that that is what Matthew has been trying to prove throughout his gospel, that this is, in fact, the Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of God. This is, in fact, Emmanuel, God, with us. And so, just as God sent his prophets, even John the Baptist, now he sends the Son, Hebrews 1.3 says, In these final days He has spoken to us in what? A son. A son. Now the son stands before them. His precious one. His truly beloved one. And what is it well up in His vine growers? Those entrusted to care for His flock? For His vineyard? Murderous thoughts. Violence. Anger. No one would ever think that someone would respond this way to the Son, and no one would ever think that in light of God's continual revelation of Himself and His continual call to them, that they would do this. No one could ever do that in light of such clear reaching of God out to His people. But that is in fact what they did, and they did it knowingly. They did it intentionally, and they did it... Deliberately. Let me remind you of John chapter 11. After the resurrection of Lazarus, the final great miracle or sign of Jesus anticipating His own resurrection, it says that some believed, but others went off to the Pharisees and told them these things which Jesus had done. And notice they never, as we well know, never did the leaders try to disprove the actual miracle itself. Never did they deny the reality of the work of power. What they hated was what it implied. What they would not recognize is the source of the power. The reality of it and the demonstration of it was plain, however, for all to see. So what'd they do? What'd they do? Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they convened a council. They gathered together. They consulted together. They came together to devise a plan. And they were saying to one another, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. And if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. If we let Christ, this Messiah self-proclaimed, come in and continue these works of power, he's going to take away everything that we consider to be ours. What? The nation of Israel. The people. It's going to go away. This one is going to take it away. We can't let that happen. So what do they do? Verse 53 of John 11. They planned that day together to kill him. To kill him. Remove him. Remove the threat. Remove his popularity. Remove him from our sight. And we will take what we want. We will take the kingdom essentially for ourselves. And that's precisely what they were planning on and conniving and seeking to do at the very moment that Jesus is giving this parable to them. They were settled in their rejection of Him. They were determined in their murderous thoughts towards Him. They would stop at nothing until He was taken off of the scene. Again, this is nothing new. This is the history of unbelieving Israel. And notice the level of detail. He says they threw them out, which is precisely the testimony of Hebrews 13, 12, that he suffered outside of the camp. Not even in his own city, but outside of the camp. Notice lastly, and we'll just briefly mention this and pick it up from here next week. So with this clear indictment, Jesus again lets them hang themselves. And he says in verse 40. Therefore when the owner of the vineyard comes. What will he do to those vine growers? And again as in the other ones. Other cases the answer is obvious. He will bring they said. Those wretches to a wretched end. And will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers. Who will pay him the proceeds. At the proper seasons. Their condemnation is just. Their answer is right. Right. And that is exactly what is going to happen as they kill the Son God will bring to them the retribution that they themselves say they deserve. Well, we'll pick it up there next week. But as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, we are reminded of those precious words of Jesus. He is the vine. He is the vine. We are the people that Jesus has brought who know him into intimate union with himself. We are those I trust in this room who are not like those wicked vine growers, the Old Testament leaders, who chose to hold on to their religion but refused to humble themselves before their God. I pray that instead of those who are nurtured by self-interest and selfishness are instead nurtured by a living and abiding relationship with Christ, through trust in Him, through faith in Him, with His Word abiding in you, rejoicing in His salvation, and desiring, above everything else, to honor Him and love Him and serve Him and be faithful to Him with your life. So with that, let us bow our heads and pray, and then they'll pass out the elements and we'll remember the Lord's table. Father, we do thank You for... The incredible grace, your overwhelming grace, your abundant mercy, your infinite patience, it seems, with us. And even we who know you realize daily the patience that we receive from you. We recognize daily and freshly, I pray and hope, the mercy in which we stand and the grace in which we stand. That in Christ we have all that our soul desires and all that we need. In Christ, in your Son, we have all that we long for. And by the Spirit, it's grace to us. We love Him. We trust in Him and are united to Him. Help us even this morning as we remember the table, our Lord, to feast on your glory and on your grace, to commit ourselves freshly to you in obedience and trust and worship. And if there are those who don't know you here this morning, then I pray that you would convict them of that very fact And be so kind as to make them a branch in the vine in truth. Pray this in your precious name. Amen.